Section 12 of State of the Union Addresses, 1849-1856. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Ernest. State of the Union Address. President Franklin Pierce. December 4, 1854. Part 2. Passing from foreign to domestic affairs, your attention is naturally directed to the financial condition of the country, always a subject of general interest. For complete and exact information regarding the finances and the various branches of the public service connected therewith, I refer you to the report of the Secretary of the Treasury, from which it will appear that the amount of revenue during the last fiscal year from all sources was $73,549,705, and that the public expenditures for the same period, exclusive of payments on account of the public debt, amounted to $51,018,249. During the same period, the payments made in redemption of the public debt, including interest and premium, amounted to $24,336,380. To the sum total of the receipts of that year is to be added a balance remaining in the Treasury at the commencement thereof, amounting to $21,942,892, and at the close of the same year a corresponding balance amounting to $20,137,967 of receipts above expenditures also remained in the Treasury. Although, in the opinion of the Secretary of the Treasury, the receipts of the current fiscal year are not likely to equal in amount those of the last, yet they will undoubtedly exceed the amount of expenditures by at least $15 million. I shall therefore continue to direct that the surplus revenue be applied, so far as it can be judiciously and economically done, to the reduction of the public debt, the amount of which at the commencement of the last fiscal year was $67 million, 340,628, of which there had been paid on the twentieth day of November, 1854, the sum of 22,365,172, leaving a balance of outstanding public debt of only 44,975,456, redeemable at different periods within 14 years. There are also remnants of other government stocks, most of which are already due, and on which the interest has ceased, but which have not yet been presented for payment, amounting to 233179 This statement exhibits the fact that the annual income of the government greatly exceeds the amount of its public debt, which latter remains unpaid only because the time of payment has not yet matured, and it cannot be discharged at once except at the option of public creditors, who prefer to retain the securities of the United States, and the other fact, not less striking, that the annual revenue from all sources exceeds by many millions of dollars the amount needed for a prudent and economical administration of the government. The estimates presented to Congress from the different executive departments at the last session amounted to 38,406,581, and the appropriations made to the sum of 58,116,958. 
of this excess of appropriations over estimates however more than twenty millions was applicable to extraordinary objects having no reference to the usual annual expenditures among these objects was embraced ten millions to meet the third article of the treaty between the united states and mexico so that in fact for objects of ordinary expenditure the appropriations were limited to considerably less than forty million i therefore renew my recommendation for a reduction of the duties on imports the report of the secretary of the treasury presents a series of tables showing the operation of the revenue system for several successive years and as the general principle of reduction of duties with a view to revenue and not protection may now be regarded as the settled policy of the country i trust that little difficulty will be encountered in settling the details of a measure to that effect in connection with this subject i recommend a change in the laws which recent experience has shown to be essential to the protection of the government there is no express provision of law requiring the records and papers of a public character of the several officers of the government to be left in their offices for the use of their successors nor any provision declaring it felony on their part to make false entries in the books or return false accounts in the absence of such express provision by law the outgoing officers in many instances have claimed and exercised the right to take into their own possession important books and papers on the ground that these were their private property and have placed them beyond the reach of the government conduct of this character brought in several instances to the notice of the present secretary of the treasury naturally awakened his suspicion and resulted in the disclosure that at four ports namely oswego toledo sandusky and milwaukee the treasury had by false entries been defrauded within the four years next preceding march eighteen fifty three of the sum of one hundred ninety eight thousand the great difficulty with which the detection of these frauds has been attended in consequence of the abstraction of books and papers by the retiring officers and the facility with which similar frauds in the public service may be perpetrated render the necessity of new legal enactments in the respects above referred to quite obvious for other material modifications of the revenue laws which seem to me desirable i refer you to the report of the secretary of the treasury that report and the tables which accompany it furnish ample proofs of the solid foundation on which the financial security of the country rests and of the salutary influence of the independent treasury system upon commerce and all monetary operations the experience of the last year furnishes additional reasons i regret to say of a painful character for the recommendation heretofore made to provide for increasing the military force employed in the territory inhabited by the indians the settlers on the frontier have suffered much from the incursions of predatory bands and large parties of immigrants to our pacific possessions have been massacred with impunity the recurrence of such scenes can only be prevented by teaching these wild tribes the power of and their responsibility to the united states from the garrisons of our frontier posts it is only possible to detach troops in small bodies and though these have on all occasions displayed a gallantry and a stern devotion to duty which on a larger field would have commanded universal admiration they have usually suffered severely in these conflicts with superior numbers and have sometimes been entirely sacrificed 
all the disposable force of the army is already employed on this service and is known to be wholly inadequate to the protection which should be afforded the public mind of the country has been recently shocked by savage atrocities committed upon defenseless immigrants and border settlements and hardly less by the unnecessary destruction of valuable lives where inadequate detachments of troops have undertaken to furnish the needed aid without increase of the military force these scenes will be repeated it is to be feared on a larger scale and with more disastrous consequences congress i am sure will perceive that the plainest duties and responsibilities of government are involved in this question and i doubt not that prompt action may be confidently anticipated when delay must be attended by such fearful hazards the bill of the last session providing for an increase of the pay of the rank and file of the army has had beneficial results not only in facilitating enlistments but an obvious improvement in the class of men who enter the service i regret that corresponding consideration was not bestowed on the officers who in view of their character and services and the expenses to which they are necessarily subject receive at present what is in my judgment inadequate compensation the valuable services constantly rendered by the army and its inestimable importance as the nucleus around which the volunteer forces of the nation can promptly gather in the hour of danger sufficiently attest the wisdom of maintaining a military peace establishment but the theory of our system and the wise practice under it require that any proposed augmentation in time of peace be only commensurate with our extended limits and frontier relations while scrupulously adhering to this principle i find in existing circumstances a necessity for increase of our military force and it is believed that four new regiments two of infantry and two of mounted men will be sufficient to meet the present exigency if it were necessary carefully to weigh the cost in a case of such urgency it would be shown that the additional expense would be comparatively light with the increase of the numerical force of the army should i think be combined certain measures of reform in its organic arrangement and administration the present organization is the result of partial legislation often directed to special objects and interests and the laws regulating rank and command having been adopted many years ago from the british code are not always applicable to our service it is not surprising therefore that the system should be deficient in the symmetry and simplicity essential to the harmonious working of its several parts and require a careful revision the present organization by maintaining large staff corps or departments separates many officers from that close connection with troops and those active duties in the field which are deemed requisite to qualify them for the varied responsibilities of high command were the duties of the army staff mainly discharged by officers detached from their regiments it is believed that the special service would be equally well performed and the discipline and instruction of the army be improved while due regard to the security of the rights of officers and to the nice sense of honor which should be cultivated among them would seem to exact compliance with the established rule of promotion in ordinary cases still it can hardly be doubted that the range of promotion by selection which is now practically confined to the grade of general officers might be somewhat extended with benefit to the public service observance of the rule of seniority sometimes leads especially in time of peace 
to the promotion of officers who, after meritorious and even distinguished service, may have been rendered by age or infirmity incapable of performing active duty, and whose advancement, therefore, would tend to impair the efficiency of the Army. Suitable provision for this class of officers, by the creation of a retired list, would remedy the evil without wounding the just pride of men who, by past services, have established a claim to high consideration. In again commending this measure to the favorable consideration of Congress, I would suggest that the power of placing officers on the retired list be limited to one year. The practical operation of the measure would thus be tested, and if after the lapse of years there should be occasion to renew the provision, it can be reproduced with any improvements which experience may indicate. The present organization of the artillery into regiments is liable to obvious objections. The service of artillery is that of batteries, and an organization of batteries into a corps of artillery would be more consistent with the nature of their duties. A large part of the troops now called artillery are, and have been, on duty as infantry, the distinction between the two arms being merely nominal. This nominal artillery in our service is disproportionate to the whole force and greater than the wants of the country demand. I therefore commend the discontinuance of a distinction which has no foundation in either the arms used or the character of the service expected to be performed. In connection with the proposition for the increase of the Army, I have presented these suggestions with regard to certain measures of reform as the complement of a system which would produce the happiest results from a given expenditure and which, I hope, may attract the early attention and be deemed worthy of the approval of Congress. The recommendation of the Secretary of the Navy having reference to more ample provisions for the discipline and general improvement in the character of seamen and for the reorganization and gradual increase of the Navy, I deem eminently worthy of your favorable consideration. The principles which have controlled our policy in relation to the permanent military force by sea and land are sound, consistent with the theory of our system, and should by no means be disregarded, but limiting the force to the subjects particularly set forth in the preceding part of this message, we should not overlook the present magnitude and prospective extension of our commercial marine, nor fail to give due weight to the fact that besides the 2,000 miles of Atlantic seaboard we now have a Pacific coast stretching from Mexico to the British possessions in the north, teeming with wealth and enterprise and demanding the constant presence of ships of war. The augmentation of the Navy has not kept pace with the duties properly and profitably assigned to it in time of peace, and it is inadequate for the large field of its operations, not merely in the present but still more in the progressively increasing exigencies of the commerce of the United States. I cordially approve of the proposed apprentice system for our national vessels recommended by the Secretary of the Navy. The occurrence during the last few months of marine disasters of the most tragic nature involving great loss of human life has produced intense emotions of sympathy and sorrow throughout the country. It may well be doubted whether all these calamitous events are wholly attributable to the necessary and inevitable dangers of the sea. The merchants, mariners, and shipbuilders of the United States are, it is true, unsurpassed in far-reaching enterprise, skill, intelligence, and courage by any others in the world. But with the increasing amount of our commercial tonnage in the aggregate, 
and the larger size and improved equipment of the ships now constructed, a deficiency in the supply of reliable seamen begins to be very seriously felt. The inconvenience may perhaps be met in part by due regulation for the introduction into our merchant ships of indented apprentices, which, while it would afford useful and eligible occupation to numerous young men, would have a tendency to raise the character of seamen as a class, and it is deserving of serious reflection whether it may not be desirable to revise the existing laws for the maintenance of discipline at sea, upon which the security of life and property on the ocean must to so great an extent depend. Although much attention has already been given by Congress to the proper construction and arrangement of steam vessels and all passenger ships, still it is believed that the resources of science and mechanical skill in this direction have not been exhausted. No good reason exists for the marked distinction which appears upon our statutes between the laws for protecting life and property at sea and those for protecting them on land. In most of the states, severe penalties are provided to punish conductors of trains, engineers, and others employed in the transportation of persons by railway or by steamboats on rivers. Why should not the same principle be applied to acts of insubordination, cowardice, or other misconduct on the part of masters and mariners producing injury or death to passengers on the high seas, beyond the jurisdiction of any of the states, and where such delinquencies can be reached only by the power of Congress. The whole subject is earnestly commended to your consideration. The report of the Postmaster General, to which you are referred for many interesting details in relation to this important and rapidly extending branch of the public service, shows that the expenditure of the year ending June 30, 1854, including 133,483 of balance due to foreign offices, amounted to 8,710,907. The gross receipts during the same period amounted to 6,955,586, exhibiting an expenditure over income of 1,755,321 and a diminution of deficiency as compared with the last year of 361,756. The increase of the revenue of the Department for the year ending June 30, 1854, over the preceding year was 970,399. No proportionate increase, however, can be anticipated for the current year in consequence of the Act of Congress of June 23, 1854, providing for increased compensation to all postmasters. From these statements, it is apparent that the Post Office Department, instead of defraying its expenses according to the design of the time of its creation, is now, and under existing laws must continue to be, to no small extent a charge upon the general treasury. The cost of mail transportation during the year ending June 30, 1854 exceeds the cost of the preceding year by 495,074. I again call your attention to the subject of mail transportation by ocean steamers and commend the suggestions of the Postmaster General to your early attention. During the last fiscal year, 11,070,935 acres of the public lands have been surveyed and 8,190,017 acres brought into market. The number of acres sold is 7,035,735, and the amount received, therefore, 9,285,533. 
the aggregate amount of lands sold located under military scrip and land warrants selected as swamp lands by states and by locating under grants for roads is upward of 23 million acres. The increase of lands sold over the previous year is about 6 million acres, and the sales during the first two quarters of the current year present the extraordinary result of 5.5 millions sold, exceeding by nearly 4 million acres the sales of the corresponding quarters of the last year. The commendable policy of the government in relation to setting apart public domain for those who have served their country in time of war is illustrated by the fact that since 1790 no less than 30 million acres have been applied to this object. The suggestions which I submitted in my annual message of last year in reference to grants of land in aid of the construction of railways were less full and explicit than the magnitude of the subject and subsequent developments would seem to render proper and desirable. Of the soundness of the principle then asserted with regard to the limitation of the power of Congress, I entertain no doubt, but in its application it is not enough that the value of lands in a particular locality may be enhanced, that in fact a larger amount of money may probably be received in a given time for alternate sections than could have been realized for all the sections without the impulse and influence of the proposed improvements. A prudent proprietor looks beyond limited sections of his domain, beyond present results to the ultimate effect which a particular line of policy is likely to produce on all his possessions and interests. The government, which is trustee in this matter for the people of the states, is bound to take the same wise and comprehensive view. Prior to and during the last session of Congress, upward of 30 million acres of land were withdrawn from public sale with a view to applications for grants of this character pending before Congress. A careful review of the whole subject led me to direct that all such orders be abrogated and the lands restored to market, and instructions were immediately given to that effect. The applications at the last session contemplated the construction of more than 5,000 miles of road and grants to the amount of nearly 20 million acres of the public domain. Even admitting the right on the part of Congress to be unquestionable, is it quite clear that the proposed grants would be productive of good and not evil? The different projects are confined for the present to 11 states of this union and one territory. The reasons assigned for the grants show that it is proposed to put the works speedily in process of construction. When we reflect that since the commencement of the construction of railways in the United States, stimulated as they have been by the large dividends realized from the earlier works over the great thoroughfares and between the most important points of commerce and population encouraged by state legislation and pressed forward by the amazing energy of private enterprise only seventeen thousand miles have been completed in all the states in a quarter of a century when we see the crippled condition of many works commenced and prosecuted upon what were deemed to be sound principles and safe calculations, when we contemplate the enormous absorption of capital withdrawn from the ordinary channels of business, the extravagant rates of interest at this moment paid to continue operations, the bankruptcies, not merely in money but in character, and the inevitable effect upon finances generally, can it be doubted that the tendency is to run to excess in this matter? Is it wise to augment this excess by encouraging hopes of sudden wealth expected to flow from magnificent schemes dependent upon the action of Congress? 
Does the spirit which has produced such results need to be stimulated or checked? Is it not the better rule to leave all these works to private enterprise, regulated and, when expedient, aided by the cooperation of states? If constructed by private capital, the stimulant and the check go together and furnish a salutary restraint against speculative schemes and extravagance. But it is manifest that with the most effective guards, there is danger of going too fast and too far. We may well pause before a proposition contemplating a simultaneous movement for the construction of railroads, which in extent will equal exclusive of the great Pacific Road and all its branches, nearly one-third of the entire length of such works now completed in the United States and which cannot cost with equipments less than $150 million. The dangers likely to result from combinations of interests of this character can hardly be overestimated. But independently of these considerations, where is the accurate knowledge, the comprehensive intelligence, which shall discriminate between the relative claims of these 28 proposed roads in 11 states and one territory? Where will you begin and where end? If to enable these companies to execute their proposed works it is necessary that the aid of the general government be primarily given, the policy will present a problem so comprehensive in its bearings and so important to our political and social well-being as to claim in anticipation the severest analysis. Entertaining these views, I recur with satisfaction to the experience and action of the last session of Congress as furnishing assurance that the subject will not fail to elicit a careful re-examination and rigid scrutiny. It was my intention to present on this occasion some suggestions regarding internal improvements by the general government, which want of time at the close of the last session prevented my submitting on their return to the House of Representatives with objections of the bill entitled an act making appropriations for the repair, preservation, and completion of certain public works heretofore commenced under the authority of law. But the space in this communication, already occupied with other matter of immediate public exigency, constrains me to reserve that subject for a special message, which will be transmitted to the two Houses of Congress at an early day. The judicial establishment of the United States requires modification, and certain reforms in the manner of conducting the legal business of the government are also much needed. But as I have addressed you upon both of these subjects at length before, I have only to call your attention to the suggestions then made. My former recommendations in relation to suitable provision for various objects of deep interest to the inhabitants of the districts of Columbia are renewed. Many of these objects partake largely of a national character and are important independently of their relation to the prosperity of the only considerable organized community in the Union entirely unrepresented in Congress. I have thus presented suggestions on such subjects as appear to me to be of particular interest or importance, and therefore most worthy of consideration during the short remaining period allotted to the labors of the present Congress. Our forefathers of the thirteen United Colonies, in acquiring their independence and in rounding this Republic of the United States of America, have devolved upon us, their descendants, the greatest and the most noble trust ever committed to the hands of men, imposing upon all, and especially such as the public will may have invested for the time being with political functions, the most sacred obligations. We have to maintain inviolate the great doctrine of the inherent right of popular self-government, to reconcile the largest liberty of the individual citizen with complete security of the public order, 
to render cheerful obedience to the laws of the land, to unite in enforcing their execution, and to frown indignantly on all combinations to resist them, to harmonize a sincere and ardent devotion to the institutions of religious faith with the most universal religious toleration, to preserve the rights of all by causing each to respect those of the other, to carry forward every social improvement to the uttermost limit of human perfectibility by the free action of mind upon mind, not by the obtrusive intervention of misapplied force, to uphold the integrity and guard the limitations of our organic law, to preserve sacred from all touch of usurpation as the very palladium of our political salvation, the reserved rights and powers of the several states and of the people, to cherish with loyal fealty and devoted affection this union, as the only sure foundation on which the hopes of civil liberty rest, to administer government with vigilant integrity and rigid economy, to cultivate peace and friendship with foreign nations, and to demand and exact equal justice from them all, but to do wrong to none, to eschew intermeddling with the national policy and the domestic repose of other governments, and to repel it from our own, never to shrink from war when the rights and the honor of the country call us to arms, but to cultivate in preference the arts of peace, seek enlargement of the rights of neutrality, and elevate and liberalize the intercourse of nations, and by such just and honorable means, and such only, whilst exalting the condition of the republic, to assure to it the legitimate influence and the benign authority of a great example amongst all the powers of Christendom. Under the solemnity of these convictions, the blessing of Almighty God is earnestly invoked to attend upon your deliberations and upon all the counsels and acts of the government, to the end that, with common zeal and common efforts, we may, in humble submission to the divine will, cooperate for the promotion of the supreme good of these United States. End of section 12. Recording by Mark Ernest.